Good evening, everybody. Good evening. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where my Bible is open. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to notice a statement that's made in this chapter in just a moment, and that will set the stage for tonight's Q&A. Going to be working with just one question this evening and doing that for a couple of reasons. The first one is, is because this one question is going to eat up the majority of our time tonight. But also, I think it is a question that deserves the opportunity to just kind of stand on, uh, on its own and not be surrounded by all kinds of other questions and other thoughts. I do have lots of other questions lined up for future installments of Q&A, but this one was brought to me with a certain degree of urgency to it. And so we want to give it our attention tonight. It's great to see you this evening. I'm glad that you're here. It's been a beautiful and a glorious day that the Lord has given us. I hope you've been able to enjoy this day in some way. Certainly we have. If we've been in this assembly, we've been able to enjoy the blessings of this day. But I hope you're eager right now to study the Bible because if we're going to get answers to the various questions that we have, they're going to come from the Bible. So let's be looking in God's Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul is making the case for the resurrection... He says in verses 13 and 14, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You know, people have always questioned the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's been lots of skeptics, lots of enemies of the cross all throughout the ages that have always questioned and in fact denied that Jesus was risen from the dead. Why, even amongst Jesus' own apostles, we probably think most famously of doubting Thomas, why, even those guys, even they struggled with grasping the concept of Jesus somehow conquering the grave and coming from death to life. And so all throughout history, people have posited various arguments, various objections to try and explain away the testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There are, for example, there are people who have tried to advance the idea that someone stole the body of Jesus. That that's what happened. When they put Him in the tomb, somehow somebody got in there, stole the body, and that's the reason the tomb was found empty on that Sunday morning. Others have theorized that, well, Jesus just, he just didn't actually die. That he was on the cross and he was in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and so he just kind of, he's kind of passed out, unconscious from all of his suffering and he was mistaken for dead. And then once he was placed into the tomb, well, the air kind of revived him and then somehow Jesus escaped and went on to live a long, fruitful life and died of natural causes in old age. You see, there's lots of those kinds of really very baseless conjectures And in fact, I've even dealt with some of those ideas in past installments of Q&A. Go back to March the 8th, 2015 in our sermon podcast and you'll find one where I dealt with a lot of those objections. There is, however, another method that many Bible skeptics and non-believers have put forth, especially in recent years, to try and argue against the resurrection of Jesus. And that is by attempting to discredit the authors of the Gospels. That is, there are people who have looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what they have said about the resurrection and the events surrounding the resurrection and they've said, you know what, all of those accounts, they they just don't match up. They don't line up correctly. There's contradictions when you read those four accounts. 
And all of those accounts, you got this guy saying one thing, and then Mark's over here saying another, and Matthew's saying this, and they're all saying different things. And as a result, that really calls into question the integrity and the legitimacy of those writings. Well, what do we say about that? Can we harmonize the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus? I want you to know tonight that that is not an inconsequential question. Because the truth is, everything depends upon the resurrection of Jesus. That's our opening text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says so. He says that the resurrection, it is at the very heart of the gospel, which means it is at the very heart and center of who and what we are. And you know what? If we cannot defend the resurrection of Jesus... Then Paul goes on in that passage to say that all is lost and all is for naught. And so while I don't have time in one setting to address everything that's ever been said about the resurrection, I do for just a few minutes tonight want to deal with this harmony business. Is it possible to harmonize the resurrection accounts? Now right about now somebody is maybe wondering, Josh... What kind of contradictions and mess-ups and goof-ups in the gospel records are you even talking about here? I've read the gospel records. I've read Matthew, I've read Mark, I've read Luke, and I've read John. And I'm not really sure what kind of conflicting information you're even alluding to here. Well, let me just let a non-believer put all of that in front of you. I want to share with you the kinds of alleged contradictions that are found within the biblical narrative And I want to share those ideas with you straight from the mouth of a non-believer. I have literally, what's going to be on like the next three slides, I have literally cut and pasted what I'm going to show you right from the internet. In fact, this particular set of material, I have seen it recycled word for word on no less than two dozen atheist websites. Lots of folks like to use these words and this material to argue against the resurrection of Jesus. And so, for example, Bible skeptics like to start out by drawing the idea and the idea that there's contradictions over who found the empty tomb. And they'll just go right to the Scriptures to try to point that out. They'll point out, first of all, that according to Matthew, well, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're the ones to find the empty tomb. But then they'll go to Mark and they'll say, well, in Mark, it's Mary Magdalene and this other Mary, presumably Mary the mother of James, and then there's some woman named Salome mentioned there. But then according to the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that it was these women who had traveled with Jesus in the region of Galilee, namely Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and who this Joanna woman is, and then Mary the mother of James. And then when you get to John's Gospel, John just says, John just says it's Mary Magdalene. That's the only one John even mentions there. I mean, look at all of that. That's four seemingly different sets of material there. The only thing that all four of those writers can seem to agree on is the fact that Mary Magdalene was there at the empty tomb. All these other women and all these other people, well, who knows? Secondly, Bible skeptics will also point out that there are contradictory statements about who was found at the empty tomb. They'll point out once again, they'll start with Matthew. In Matthew, we're told that there was an angel of the Lord. And he had an appearance that was like lightning and that he was sitting on top of the rolled away stone and there was also some guards there, the one that Pilate had placed there to be stationed at the tomb. But then you go over and you start reading Mark's account of the resurrection and you read that it was a young man 
And use the word angel, but a young man there in a white robe, and he was sitting, not on top of the rock, but he's sitting inside the tomb. Then when you get to Luke's gospel, according to Luke, it was two men, and they're in dazzling apparel, and Luke isn't even sure if they're inside the tomb or if they're outside the tomb. Then you get to John's account, and John's just got all kinds of varying information in there. At first it's Mary, and it's Peter, and it's John, and the tomb is empty, and the only thing that they see there are the linen wrappings folded up. But then after Peter and John leave, seemingly there's these two angels, and they appear there inside the tomb, and they have a conversation with Mary, and after Mary's done talking to them, she turns around and bang, there's Jesus. Well, come on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which is it? Is it one angel, or is it two angels? And were these actually angels, or were they just men? Were they inside the tomb, or were they outside the tomb? Lots of fodder there to make the accusation that the Bible is once again contradicting itself. And then thirdly, Bible skeptics are quick to show that there isn't even agreement on who these various witnesses reported the news of the risen Lord to. They will point out that there is agreement amongst Matthew and amongst Luke and amongst John, that Matthew, Luke, and John, they all say that these witnesses, they go and they tell the disciples about the empty tomb and about the risen Lord. But notice there in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel says that these women, these witnesses, they were afraid and that they said nothing to anyone. That seems like the very definition of a contradiction, right? Got these other three guys saying they told all these people. Then you got Martha that says they didn't tell anybody because they were afraid. And so there you have it. We got these four gospel writers who can't even get the details straight on what Christians would claim to be the most important event in all of human history. You'd think if there's one event you'd want to get all your ducks in a row about, this would be it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And like I said, all of these arguments that I've thrown up here, these aren't just hypotheticals that I've made up that I think someone might say. No. There are people in this very auditorium tonight who have encountered those arguments from friends and from loved ones and from non-believers. And so what do we say about all of that? What is our response? Can the resurrection accounts in the Bible, can they be harmonized? Is there a way to make sense of what maybe on the surface appears to be some conflicting reports between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, let me set before you, in these few minutes tonight, let me set before you just some very basic principles to consider. I think some very simple and very very tangible ideas that we can grab onto and we can work with that will help us to find harmony in these gospel accounts. First and foremost, I think we need to spend a moment or two thinking about the nature of eyewitness testimony. Whenever you have eyewitness testimony, do the witnesses all report the exact same thing? Think about this. If there is, if you've got four witnesses, four people that are standing on four corners of an intersection, they're all waiting to, to walk across the street, and imagine that at that intersection there's a terrible car crash that happens. If you went and you talked to those four witnesses afterwards, would they all say the exact same thing about what they saw? Would they all give the exact same details about the things that they were witness to? Of course not. And why? Well, because they all saw that event through their own 
eyes. They saw that event through their own perspective. You're standing on a corner over here. you got a different perspective than the guy who's standing on the corner over there. And so, for example, if one of the witnesses at that crime, at that, not a crime scene, but at that car wreck scene, if maybe they knew personally one of the people who was involved in the wreck, then their perspective would probably be very focused on that, on that friend, on that person that they knew. And so they may say, you know what, I, I saw my friend, and I saw that he was, he was trying to cut to the left, but he, he kind of overextended, and so, so, so his car hydroplaned, and, and I could see, even in that split second, I could see the look on his face, he was just in shock and in fear about the collision that was about to happen. That witness's viewpoint would really be fixated and focused on the friend. Or if one of the witnesses at that scene was, say, an automobile mechanic, what would his testimony be all about? He might say, well, I, I saw the cars traveling. I'd say they were probably going 35, 40 miles an hour down through there. And at the moment of impact, I saw, I could see the airbags deployed. And it looked like the, the right front fender. That's what took the bulk of the damage. But that guy was driving a 97 Chevy. And I knew that his brakes would be weak because I know all about those cars. And the engine was smoking after it was over. And it was making me think that maybe this had happened. That guy, his testimony would have a particular emphasis on maybe the mechanical side of things. That's what he's looking for. You see, everybody's testimony is going to depend upon their own perspective, on what they saw and how they saw it. If a doctor or a nurse, if they were one of the witnesses there, and they observed all of that happening, they might be fixated on the on the injuries that had taken place, on what kinds of medical care the various uh, victims and the motorists needed at that time. We understand about that, don't we? We understand how eyewitness testimony works. They all see and they all report different details. And, this is important, none of those differences mean that the witnesses are lying. You need to understand that. They're not necessarily lying. They're not just making up their story. They're simply sharing what they saw, what they saw through their eyes. It's not that their testimony is untrue. They're just seeing it from their particular viewpoint. In fact, imagine, let's keep using that same illustration. Imagine if a lawsuit gets filed in court as a result of that car wreck. Let's say somebody sees that billboard out there about the hammer, and they call the hammer, and the hammer's going to go, and he's going to file that personal injury lawsuit on behalf of this, this person who's been, who's been damaged. And so he then puts all four of those witnesses that were there that day, he puts all four of those witnesses on the stand. What if all four of those witnesses tell the exact same story? I mean right down to the exact smallest, most minute details. Each person's testimony is just a complete carbon copy of the other person's testimony. What are people going to say about that? People would say, that's rehearsed testimony. You all have practiced that. You all have been coached to say that. No four people standing in different places would all say the exact same thing, that they all saw the exact same details. No, no, no. You all rehearsed that. The only way to explain you being able to do that is collusion. And so what we want to remember, as we now think about these four gospel writers, is we want to remember that whenever we're reading these resurrection accounts, And in fact, whenever we're reading anything in the Bible where we get different accounts of the same event, we want to remember that just because there are differences in the recounting of those events, that does not automatically equal a contradiction. 
And we need to keep that in mind. And we want to help folks to understand about that. Secondly, if we want to find harmony in the gospel accounts of these events, then we need to make sure that we properly estimate what exactly is going on here. We need to make sure that we don't allow these perceived discrepancies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we need to make sure that we don't allow these things to get overblown. Bible critics, when they talk about this, and in fact, you should have read that website. There's a whole lot more than just what I put on the screen a moment ago. They want to act like we've just got these wildly different accounts in the Bible and that there's just no way that anybody's ever going to be able to reconcile and make sense of all that. And that, of course, is absolutely not true. All four of those gospel accounts, they tell us about some women. Some women who came to the tomb on that Sunday morning. How many women? Four. We're talking about four women. John mentions Mary Magdalene by herself. Matthew adds that other Mary. Mark adds Salome. And then Luke account, Luke's account adds that woman named Joanna. That's it. We're just trying to account for the actions of four women. And Bible critics want to act like we've got one gospel over here that names 50 women. And here's another gospel account that names 50 different women. And here's another gospel account that names 70 women and then three dogs and a cat and two children. That's not true. That's not the case at all. We're just looking at the actions that morning of four women. One writer said the following. He said, given four books written over decades of time, by four different authors, the agreement on this issue is what is most remarkable. From the outset, we're not dealing with a long list of divergent names. But given the number of times that Bible critics talk about this, one would expect far more diversity. And that's exactly right. Bible critics want to act like this is just some hopeless case. Oh, there's just all these differences. Christians are never going to be able to explain this. It's just absolutely, it's just absolutely unfathomable. And that's not true at all. In fact, if you'll notice in those verses that I had on the screen a moment ago, none of the gospel writers ever say that this woman that I'm talking about, or these couple of women that I'm talking about, that these are the only women who were there at the tomb that morning. None of them say that. None of them say these were the only women and there was no other women possible who could have been present. None of them say anything like that. In fact, would you find Luke's account? Look in Luke 24. In Luke chapter 24, Luke actually goes out of his way to say that there were other women. In Luke chapter 24, I'm looking at verse 10. In Luke 24, look in verse 10. There Luke records, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Notice this and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And so here's Luke. He never tries to act like he's just got some exclusive list. It's these named people right here, and that's it. Luke never does that. Luke never says these are the only ones who could have been at the tomb that day, and so if the other writers, if they say something different, then they must be wrong. No. Luke says and allows for other women who were there that day. That would then allow... For what Mark mentions about that woman Salome. She would count as one of the other women. In fact, John's Gospel even does this very same thing. In John chapter 20, would you notice there? Maybe in a slightly more subtle fashion, 
you got to pay attention. Words matter. In John chapter 20, look at the account that John gives. Verse 1. In John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. John's account's the one that only mentions Mary Magdalene. She came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, notice this, and we, underline that, we do not know where they have laid them. Who's the we? Well, if you were only reading John's Gospel, we don't know exactly who the we is. That's why you need to read those other Gospel accounts and piece them together. But John's inclusion of that statement in verse 2 about we, that is evidence. John is saying Mary was not the only person there at the tomb that morning. Mary acknowledges that there were other women present. And I think that just demonstrates for us that in order for us to piece all of this together about who was where and who was doing what and when all this stuff happened, that just means we're going to have to do some some honest detective work. And I believe when we do that, we can construct a timeline that works and that fits with all of the biblical data. It can be done. For example, here's a sample little chart. You're not going to be able to read that. I just wanted to throw that up there. Here's a sample chart. I got that from an apologetics website. I can't necessarily say that I would condone everything that's on there, but this was certainly good. There's a kind of a chart that kind of harmonizes many of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, starting there with Mary Magdalene and actually going, I didn't have time to, or wasn't able to fit the entire chart on the screen, but actually extends all the way to, to Saul of Tarsus when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And I show that to you simply just to say, there's lots of that kind of stuff available. That's one of the blessings of technology today. We're able to access a lot of that stuff. You don't have to own a lot of books. But you can get it. You find that on the internet. Do a Google search this evening. Lots of study Bibles contain those kinds of lists and that kind of information. You can find some good commentaries that will even present some of those ideas and put those things out there. I'm not going to stand up here and try to lay out a specific sequence of events because I don't want to be trying to bind one specific chronology when I think the biblical account actually allows for several possible explanations as far as the series of events. I would say, though... That instead of trying to line all of that up to where it fits perfectly, all these people are at all their designated points and we just know this has to be it, maybe what we really ought to do is we ought to just, we ought to just focus on some of the clues that the text gives us about time. About the time of day when certain events happened. When you read those statements in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about time, I think it becomes evident that what you might have is you might have some groups that are coming while others are going. And maybe you even have some groups of people that are missing each other as they go there to the tomb and find it empty. Some are learning that that the tomb is empty and so they're going to tell. While others are just on their way to the tomb and they're going to find out that the tomb is empty. There's lots of possibilities here. And so, for example, in Matthew chapter 28... In Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 1, notice the kind of the marker that's given there in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28 and verse 1, we're told that they were going there and that it began to be dawn. But if you read Mark's account, Mark chapter 16 and verse 2, Mark says that the women were there when the sun had already risen. Well, that seems to be talking about two different times. That's kind of a little bit later 
in that morning. Luke's account uses the term early dawn. John's account says that they were there even earlier than that. They were there while it was still dark. You see, there's no way that you can look at all of those time differences and decide that they all have to be talking about the same time. Everybody went in one big group and they all had to be there in that one group at that one set time. That's not what the Bible is trying to say. And so that would mean, for example, that Mary Magdalene, she could have come alone very early in that morning. And then after learning about Jesus not being in the tomb, she could have then ran and left to tell Peter and to tell John, hey, the tomb is empty. And then the three of them maybe all together returned to notice that the tomb was empty. In fact, that seems to be exactly the series of events that John lays out. Would you look in John 20? John doesn't say that specifically, but I think we can draw some conclusions about that. In John chapter 20, look in verse 1 again. John chapter 20, verse 1. There it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid Him. And so what, what happens in the next few verses is it says that Peter, he went with the other disciple, and they come back to the tomb. It only says about Peter and John. It doesn't say anything here about Mary coming back with them. But then would you notice verse 11? Verse 11 then says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And then the events follow thereafter. You know what that says to me? That says to me, Mary probably came back with them. text doesn't say that expressly, but I think it allows for the possibility that she just came right back with them. And so there's probably lots of that coming and going going on that the Bible doesn't just lay out and spell out for us in specific detail. I think if the Bible did do that, it would detract away from the main point. And what's the main point? Main point is that the Lord has risen from the dead. That's what's most important. And so I don't think that we have to get all everything perfectly lined up and has to be exactly accurate to where we get some kind of a big perfect chart or calendar to, to make all of this fit. But can I say another quick word or two that I think might help us in this discussion to deal with a couple of those other things that were mentioned by objectors? What about those angels? Talk about the angels. One chapter says it's one angel. Another chapter says it's two angels. What about that? Was it angel singular or is it angel plural? Angels plural. We need to, we need to pay attention to the text. Words matter. Well, can I point out the fact that Matthew, his reference to an angel singular... While John refers to angels, plural, that doesn't mean that Matthew is contradicting John. If there's two angels, and Matthew focuses on the one of them, especially the one who does the speaking, then that doesn't mean that there weren't two. Maybe a simpler way of saying that is that one can still allow for two. And then what about this business of the women telling the disciples... They went and told the disciples that they've seen the, seen the empty tomb. Some of them had seen the risen Lord Himself. But then when you get to Mark's account, Mark's account says that they were afraid. And they didn't say anything to anyone. Well, what about that? That seems like an obvious contradiction. Did they tell? Or were they afraid to tell? Which is it? Well, the truth is, the text never says that the women all stayed together in one big group. And what that says to me is that says to me that you might have had some of those women who were afraid. And if you are afraid, yeah, you're probably not going to tell. You're probably still in shock and trembling. And so you don't say anything to anybody. But you know what? 
There were other women who weren't afraid, obviously. Mary Magdalene, she wasn't afraid. She was excited. She went and told everybody that she could. That's just using some common deduction skills. You don't have to have some kind of a degree from the police academy or be some kind of a professional detective in order to put those kinds of principles to work to see how the Bible is not contradicting itself. And so if I were to just go back to the original question that I had for the title of the lesson, can we harmonize the resurrection accounts? The answer to that is absolutely yes we can. And the reason I say that with 100% confidence is because the Bible is accurate and the Bible is true. It is breathed out by God Himself. Let me close with this quotation from Simon Greenleaf. I don't know if the name Simon Greenleaf means anything to you, but when I still worked for the county attorney's office, I was, for a period of time, I was uh, taking courses in uh, paralegal studies. And I got familiar with Simon Greenleaf. Specifically, he is a Harvard Law professor who actually wrote what is considered the standard book, the standard book about legal evidence. In that book, or not in that book, but Simon Greenleaf in some of his other writings, he said the following. He said about the four Gospels. He said those four Gospels, they would have been received as evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. And in fact, Simon Greenleaf credits the consistency and the truthfulness of those gospel records as being the reason that he was converted to Jesus Christ. That's a guy who's a professional, a trained professional who is saying that these accounts, they would stand up in any court of law as being a true and proper account of what happened on that fateful Sunday morning. As I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where we started, I am reminded of what Paul says. Paul does say, we read earlier, Paul does say that if the resurrection of Jesus, if it's not true, then all of this is for naught. We're wasting our time. But Paul concludes those thoughts in verse 20 by saying this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We can know with 100% certainty that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead And that's important because that lets us know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with power. I'm asking you tonight as we extend the invitation of the Lord, I'm asking you, have you confessed that truth that Jesus is God's Son? The evidence is overwhelming. If you do believe that with all of your heart, if you are willing to repent and turn from your sins, then tonight... We'd love to baptize you in water for the remission of your sins. Those are the things that the Bible says you need to do in order to be a Christian, to be forgiven, to be a part of God's family so that heaven can be your home when this life is over. If you are a child of God, but maybe that truth about the resurrection of Jesus, and even more, that truth that yes, one of these days, we too are going to be resurrected. Maybe that's not had the force and the power that it deserves in your life to keep you on the straight and narrow path. Brother or sister, you need to recognize the power of that truth. There is going to be a day 
where we're all going to be raised and we're all going to stand before the Lord and we're going to have to answer for how we lived our lives. Are you ready for that day? If there's something you need to change, if there's some repenting that needs to be happening, some praying that needs to be happening, we're ready to assist you as well. Whatever your need might be, let's all be ready for that day when we're risen and we stand before the Lord. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation, do that right now while we stand and while we sing.